You're listening to World Class from the Freeman Spodley Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. We bring expertise on international affairs from Stanford's campus straight to you. I'm Michael McFall, the director of FSI and the host of World Class. American policy and strategy in the Middle East have been complicated for years, that's a gross understatement, and it's not getting any easier. To help us break down the Iran deal, the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi, and generally America's role in the Middle East, we are pleased to have with us Colin Call, our new co-director of Stanford Center for International Security and Cooperation, and the head of the Middle East Initiative here at FSI. Uh, before joining FSI, uh, Colin was a deputy assistant to the president, uh, President Obama, and national security advisor for Vice President Biden from 2014 to 2017. Actually, in between, he was also a professor at Georgetown, uh, where we stole him from, uh, and we're delighted to have him uh, on our faculty today. Colin, thanks for joining World Class today. Great to be here. So let's start with Khashoggi, um, this horrific assassination that happened. Maybe just for our listeners, tell us to the best of your knowledge where that story is today. And then second, let's reflect on what you think it means for the future of U.S.-Saudi relations. Well, maybe we can start just by reviewing the facts. Yes. So uh, Jamal Khashoggi, a prominent Saudi journalist, a dissident, uh, a, uh, a major critic of the current Saudi government, in particular uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, uh, walked into the Saudi consulate in Istanbul on October 2nd. Uh, to get some paperwork related to uh, his upcoming wedding uh, to a Turkish national. Um, waiting for him in the consulate was a 15-man hit squad sent by somebody uh, uh, in Saudi Arabia um, to abduct him, to kill him. We still don't know all of the details, but all we do know is that Jamal Khashoggi was murdered uh, in the consulate. Uh, he was dismembered, and his body is yet to be uh, found. The question is why yes. and who ordered it? Um a lot of suspicion. Have you ever heard of anything like this before, Colin, in your experience in the Middle East or anywhere? I've certainly never heard it, uh, an incident like this um, happening at the hands of a country that we consider to be an ally or a strategic okay. partner. I mean, right. obviously, right. Uh, there are some pretty terrible regimes out there that have been done pretty horrible things. Uh, and our, our relationship with Saudi Arabia has been complicated for a long time, but we don't hear of things like this happening um, from countries that we think of as our friends or our partners. Okay. And I think that's what shocked uh, the conscience of, of a lot of people in the United States and in the West that, you know, for all of its challenges, that someone in the kingdom would, would order something like this. Uh, the Saudi story on this changed right. uh, a yeah. bunch of different times, and they got repeatedly caught in lies, which I think just compounded their problems. You mm -hmm. know, the old saying that it's it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. I mean, in this case, it's both the crime and the cover-up that mm -hmm. I think uh, is is has caused so much... Um, uh, focus on this story. Initially, the Saudis said they thought he was still alive, that uh, he had left the consulate. That was a lie. Uh, then they said that uh, he, he might have been killed by rogue killers. That appears to have been a lie. Uh, then they said that he that uh, that a team had gone uh, without the permission of the king or the crown prince to go get him, and a fist fight had broken out, and and he'd been killed uh, that way. That that now is a, has been shown to be a lie. Uh, the uh, Saudi officials now admit that this was premeditated. Uh, they sent a, a forensic specialist with a bone saw. Uh, they sent a body double. Wow. Um, this was this was a horrible premeditated crime. The question is who ordered it? A lot of suspicion has has turned towards Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, the 33 year old de facto ruler of of Saudi Arabia. Uh, suspicion has turned his way, I think, basically for two reasons. One, because Mohammed bin Salman, who goes by the acronym MBS, uh, despite being so young 
is, you know, the favored son of his of the king, King Salman, uh, who has put his son in charge of the defense portfolio, the economic portfolio, including uh, the oil uh, portfolio for for Saudi Arabia. And because his his father is not in the greatest of health, he, he's leaned on his son considerably. And because MBS has consolidated so much authority, there's the assumption that no operation of this scale against a uh, such a high profile dissident uh, of the kingdom. I mean, let's remember, this guy was a resident of Virginia, writing in the Washington Post as a columnist. He right. was not some obscure nobody. He was right. a somebody. That nothing like that could have happened without MBS's permission. That's right. thing one. Thing two is that it also happens that, it, that several members of the hit squad were members of the Royal Guard and MBS's personal security detail. And the Turks, who have been kind of dribbling out intelligence on this, have even suggested there might have been some messaging between the squad and MBS's office. So a lot of fingers are pointing in MBS's direction. The other reason uh, to to, uh, think that the crown prince's fingerprints might be on this is that it actually is consistent with a broader pattern of quite reckless behavior by Mohammed bin Salman since ascending uh, to power in 2015 out of nowhere. The Even former, though he's young and hasn't been in power too long. That's right. So that's right. So for your listeners, you know, in 2015, uh, the previous king, King Abdullah, passes away. Uh, he's replaced uh, uh, by King Salman. Uh, king Salman elevates his his youthful son uh, that pretty much nobody knew to be the deputy crown prince, the second in command, uh-huh. but also makes him uh, uh, the minister, the minister of defense, even though his son at this time is 29 years old. <laughs> Uh, he, right. So right. If, it's like if, if our secretary of defense was a 29 year old kid, really. Right. Um, you know, and then in 2017, MBS kind of crowds out the the crown prince, Mohammed bin Nayef, to become number two and or, you know, the first in line of succession uh, and is essentially running uh, running the, the country. Between 2015 and today, MBS has largely been responsible for Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen, uh, for the disastrous blockade against Qatar for uh, essentially abducting the prime minister of Lebanon uh, last year in an effort, a ham-handed effort to try to embarrass Lebanese Hezbollah and and Iran. Uh, MBS was behind the recent yanking of the Saudi ambassador from Canada Canada when when the Canadians criticized Saudi Arabia's human rights record. And despite Mohammed bin Salman's efforts to kind of remake the image of the kingdom as a modernizing, youthful, dynamic place, and he has done some things uh, that are positive on the reform front. He's been pretty brutally repressive against all potential opponents, both powerful members of the royal family and business people, but also human rights dissidents. So the notion that MBS might approve something like this is also kind of fits a pattern. It, potentially. Uh-huh. So what does that mean then? What are the implications of that? Our, our closest, our, well, you tell me, a close ally in the Middle East, uh, the leader Doing, I mean, it's a quite an impressive, tragic list you just mentioned. Aside from Khashoggi, but now Khashoggi, what does that mean? What? Well, let's let's parse the question in two ways. What do you think it will mean, and what should it mean for U.S. Saudi relations? I think it's a potential inflection point. With the caveat, important caveat being that the Trump administration clearly doesn't want it to be an inflection point. Okay. So I think that what the incident has revealed is that there uh, is a lot of underlying suspicion about Saudi Arabia. Uh, in the United States in general, but in Washington in particular, that we don't normally hear about yes. uh, because we do work alongside the Saudis in lots of different ways on counterterrorism. Uh, we count on them to stabilize oil markets and to help partner with us across uh, our, our, the Middle East to advance common interests. And yet at the same time, 
you know, there's the 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 long the long history of Saudi Arabia uh, promoting radical Wahhabi uh, ideology in places like Pakistan, um, elsewhere in the Middle East and Africa, uh, and elsewhere, giving rise uh, to an ideology that oftentimes funnels recruits into organizations like Al Qaeda. Uh, you have the fact that 15 of the 19 hijackers on 9/11 were Saudis. Yes, and uh, you know there's a, and and it's also the case that that you know Saudi Arabia is a tremendously oppressive place, especially if you're a woman, but not exclusively uh, if you're a woman. It's a it's, it has a terrible human rights record. It regularly uh, executes and beheads large numbers of people that oppose the the uh, the government there. Um, and so our relationship with Saudi Arabia has never been rooted in a set of common values. We share, in fact, uh-huh. almost no common values in common. It's been a, it's been rooted in a set of common interests, uh, where a, a, essentially a transactional bargain that's existed since the Second World War, whereby the United States provides a kind of security umbrella for the kingdom in exchange for Saudi Arabia, the world's most important uh, oil producer, helping to stabilize oil markets. But I think in recent years, that's started to change as the United States has gained a certain degree of energy independence as a, as a consequence of, you know, fracking and the, and the, and the boom in, oil, in shale oil and gas here. Now, we're not truly independent because oil is priced globally, and so right. that matters. But there's, I think there's a degree of freedom of action that, the, that, that American policymakers perceive because of the energy revolution here in, in North America. I think there are some who believe that the Saudis have... Um, have become so obsessed uh, with pushing back against Iran and the Muslim Brotherhood and, and other boogeymen in the region uh, that they've uh, gone to excessive lengths in ways that have destabilized the region in, in certain places, like in Yemen, where they've contributed to the worst humanitarian crisis ongoing on planet Earth. Um, but the Saudis have also, you know, they have a lot of friends in Washington, a lot of powerful right. lobbyists, a lot of powerful law firms, a lot of influence in Congress. And so even though you might hear Mike, when you and I would go out to a cocktail party in Washington, mm-hmm. you'd hear complaints, quiet complaints about the Saudis. You didn't see a lot of that on TV. You didn't right. see a lot of that on the op-ed pages, et cetera. And I've I have been playing the, this game for a long time. Roger that. And I think what the Khashoggi incident did was to create a little bit of a permission structure that let loose all of these criticisms that were kind of lurking right below the surface. So in that sense, I think it could be a potential inflection point of the relationship with Saudi Arabia. But there's a, a powerful... Uh, a force acting in the other direction. And that is, of course, that the Trump administration has completely invested its entire play in the Middle East on Saudi Arabia and on Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman in particular. The pushback against Iran, the effort to get an Israeli-Palestinian peace accord that is strongly tilted in Israel's favor, which requires Saudi Arabia to put pressure on the the Palestinians, an effort to uh, provide an alternative source for stabilization aid in places like Iraq and Syria. Um, That entire play orients around the kingdom and Trump is not particularly concerned about human rights anywhere in the world. Right. Uh, and, and you know, the president himself, his biggest disappointment with the Khashoggi affair appears to have been how badly the Saudis bungled the cover-up uh, rather than the murder itself. And, and administration officials are essentially trying to figure out how they can do kind of have a de minimis response that's symbolic and political and then go back to business as usual with the Saudis. So, you know, I can't tell you it's going to, ha- it's going to be, result in a strategic break. Uh, or a fundamental rethinking of the relationship. Although I do suspect if the Democrats take over the House, uh, the Trump administration will ha- find it more difficult to give the kingdom the blank check they've given them over the last two years. Well, you mentioned Iran. Let's come back to that because it, it does seem like both President Trump and his administration have a different approach to Iran than you did when yeah. you were in the government in the Obama administration. Explain a little of that and then help us understand how Saudi Arabia fits into this, this new strategy and evaluate the strategy as well. Yeah, it's an important question. Look, I think that um, 
Obama thought that the United States had uh, was strategically overinvested uh, and overexposed uh, in the Middle East relative to in the Middle East broadly. In the Middle East broadly, uh-huh. as a consequence of the post nine eleven interventions in Afghanistan, but especially Iraq, right? That had locked down at any given time a quarter of a million uh, U.S. men and women in, in uniform. Um, a lot of our most uh, important and valuable military assets beyond just people. UAVs, aircraft carriers, you name it, uh, and that it was this huge sucking sound on U.S. foreign policy that really made it difficult to manage other global problems, whether they be in the Asia-Pacific region uh, vis-a-vis China or North Korea, or whether they be in Europe uh, later on in the administration, especially as concerns rose about a about a, a resurgent and more reassertive uh, Russia under Putin. Right. right. So <clears throat> I think that, that Obama, from the beginning, saw uh, the Middle East as this huge sucking sound. Deleveraging our position in the Middle East required, in Obama's estimation, three things. Uh, one was to uh, downsize our presence in Iraq uh, to end that war. Right. Uh, the second thing was to try to get a peace agreement between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And the third was to address the nuclear challenge from Iran, both because uh, the, the acquisition of nuclear weapons by Iran was seen as a direct threat to our vital national interests, mm-hmm. but also to key allies of the United States, in particular Israel, but also because Prior to Iran crossing the threshold of acquiring a nuclear weapon, it was likely that somebody was going to start a war to stop it, either the Israelis or us. And so if you're Obama and you're, and, and you're looking at Iran, you need to deal with the nuclear issue both because it's a, it's, a vital threat to our, it's a threat to our vital national interests. Obama thought that nuclear proliferation was one of the biggest concerns that we had, but also because if you didn't solve the nuclear puzzle, there was going to be another major war which would drag us right back into the Middle East just at the time when we were trying to rebalance. Uh, So for Obama, uh, the the nuclear deal was not a ticket out of the Middle East, like that it didn't matter, but but it would allow us to rebalance our national security portfolio, given that we're a global superpower with interests all over the place. Of course, countries like Saudi Arabia, very, very concerned about Iran, but didn't view Iran's, uh, the, the challenge Iran posed as solely or uniquely through the nuclear lens. They, you know, Saudi Arabia saw Iran principally as a uh, as a competitor for regional hegemony and more broadly as a competitor to dominate the hearts and minds of the Muslim world across the world. More broadly, speaking, more broadly. Right? Uh-huh. And there's a sectarian dimension, a Sunni Shia dimension of that that's layered on top of a geopolitical uh, dimension. Uh-huh. And so I think a couple of things made the Saudis very anxious. One was Obama's uh, reaction to the Arab Spring, where Obama early on leaned into the protest movements. And they saw Mubarak, uh, an ally of 30 years, uh, fall on the, to the wayside. They saw protests. They, the Saudis, saw protests in places like Bahrain, which are very crucial to the kingdom. And they started to get nervous about whether the United States would support them if, if, certain, if those circumstances came to the came kingdom. To so they got nervous. Uh, because of that. And then they got nervous because uh, of the Iran deal, that, that it addressed one piece of the of the Iran threat, if you were the kingdom, but seemed to be the ticket for the Americans to pivot away from the Middle East, provide less security to the region. And so I think that nervousness has made Saudi Arabia much more assertive since 2011 in the region. So uh-huh. in 2011, they intervened in Bahrain, in Bahrain, something that if you had told me that Saudi tanks would cross the causeway and, and essentially take over Bahrain in 2011, uh, I think a lot of people would have been surprised by that. Right. They become much more assertive vis-a-vis uh, Qatar because they saw Qatar as supportive of you know, the Muslim Brotherhood in places like, uh, in places like Egypt. They were, extraordin- they were convinced that when uh, the Houthis uh, in Yemen, a kind of a Shia offshoot group in northern Yemen, started to take over big chunks of the country in late 2014, 
early 2015, they were convinced that that was a bid by Iran to go at the soft underbelly of the kingdom. Of the kingdom and they right. responded with this extraordinarily aggressive air campaign. Which continues to this Which day. continues to this day. So interestingly, if the Saudis were reacting out of a sense of insecurity or fear or uncertainty about the U.S. commitment under the Obama administration, uh, some of which was fair, some of which was not fair, the Trump administration came in wanting to embrace Saudi Arabia to run the play that I talked about earlier of pushing Iran back. You only can make the reimposition of sanctions against Iran in the in the absence of the Iran deal work if the Saudis are willing to put a lot of oil on the market. That's right. an example. Right. Um, or, you know, the, the Middle East peace play with the Israelis and the Palestinians or or other issues. They decided to essentially give the Saudi, Saudi Arabia a full embrace. So instead of make them nervous, wrap their arms around them, give them a full embrace, write them a blank, a blank check, choose your uh, metaphor. And the reaction has been MBS has consolidated powers at home. He initiated the blockade against Qatar, another U.S. partner in the region and host of the largest single U.S. base in the Middle right. East. A lot of your listeners Small. may not know that. Yes. And to give them a free hand in Yemen to escalate the war there. So I think what we've seen is that one administration made them nervous and the Saudis did things we don't like. The other administration made them the opposite of nervous, reassured them to the hilt. And the Saudis have, if anything, escalated the right. things that we don't like. I think that what, suge- what that suggests is that the Saudis are not making their calculations solely based on us. <laughs> well, but uh, but based on, I mean, the social scientist in me says yes. if, if both something and its opposite is producing the same thing, Can't maybe that true. something is not the key variable. Yes, right. <laughs> something else is going on. Right. And I think what is going on here is, um, is, is how the kingdom has recalculated its interests since 2011 in particular, but also the consolidation at home under the, in the hands of, of the crown prince. Which you know raises the question of where we could go, where we should go from here. Yeah, and that's here, my this next is where question, I think. Actually, yes. Here, I think that the Trump administration has boxed itself in. Okay. Um, because even if they were inclined to do some things uh, against the Saudis, it could be pausing arms sales, it could be targeted human rights sanctions against those who mm-hmm. were involved in Khashoggi's uh, incident uh, in the Khashoggi uh, murder. Uh, it could be being much more forward-leading on Yemen. They worry that alienating Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman will will mean that the Saudis will dial back some of their cooperation in certain areas, and in particular, their cooperation in making sure that enough oil is flowing to the global markets so that you don't get a price shock when the major reimposition of sanctions against Iran kick in on November 5th. November 5th, that's nice. yeah. right around the corner. That's and right. that pressure is really central to Trump's strategy towards the Middle East. It's right? the entire strategy. I mean, it's yeah. the entire strategy. In the fact, entire strategy, Right, okay. so, you know, um, some people, I'm a... I'm a political scientists at, at heart. So I'm going to, I'll be a little nerdy and academic for a second. Some people kind of accused or described uh, Obama's policy in the Middle East as a form of offshore balancing. Yep. That is kind of pulling back and only intervening when it was in our narrow national interest or to make sure that any one actor uh, couldn't dominate the region, but essentially uh, seeking a degree of equilibrium that maintained our vital national interests. Right. I would describe Trump's uh, uh, strategy in the Middle East as offshore hegemony. Uh, Trump also doesn't want to get deeply involved in a big Middle Eastern war. But what he does want is to to impose U.S. preferences at a distance. So he actually wants to be very involved in imposing U.S. preferences in the region, uh, but at a remove. And so what that means is that he's going to use primary and secondary sanctions to pummel the Iranian economy, maybe triggering regime change. Uh, while letting the Saudis and the Israelis and the Emiratis essentially telling them, go get them, guys, uh, in places like Syria, Yemen, right. uh, and elsewhere to push back Iran uh, militarily. So that entire play against Iran gets called into question if the cooperation between the United States and Saudi Arabia starts to break down. And there couldn't be a worse moment 
uh, for that to happen for the Trump administration because the big oil sanctions against Iran kick in on November 5th. So they need the Saudis at the end of the day, in their view, in their mind, they, they, and they don't want to disrupt that, that relationship because of their focus on Iran. Yeah. Because they, they decided to run this play of movie, you know, Obama thought that the Iran deal bought us a decent interval of 10 or 15 right. years. That's a very chunks of time, by the way, in yeah. the world history, uh, you know. Correct. So if 15 years from the Iran deal is 2030. Yeah. All right. And so what the what the Trump administration did is they took a crisis that they anticipated in 2030 and artificially moved it forward to 2018. So right and in so doing, they've locked themselves into a policy, walking away from the Iran deal, alienating our allies in Europe in the pro- who negotiated the deal alongside us, pushing the Iranians closer to Russia and China, right. pushing the Europeans closer to Russia and China to avoid US, U.S. sanctions. They've done all of that. And the only people who support their policies are the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Bahrainis and Israel. And so if they lose Saudi support for this, it's really hard for them uh, to, to run this particular play. Sounds like we're going to be talking about this part of the world for a long, long time. Um, it doesn't sound good. It, it, it makes me nervous that, that that balance of power you're talking about between the Saudis and Iran could become hotter, especially if we choose to up the pressure on Iran. And that's why we're going to have to have you back, Colin. Uh, thank you for uh, coming to World Class. And I have no doubt we'll be re- revisiting this maybe even just in the next couple of weeks, depending on what happens with those new sanctions. Sounds good. You've been listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. If you like this episode, please review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners to find the show. And be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on what's happening in the world and why.